Hello, welcome to BGS English Revision Podcast. I'm Mr. Forster and I'm here with... Mr. Evans, hi there. And we're here to talk about the very straightforward and simple poem, The Other, by Ted Hughes. Um, I mean, it probably starts with a, a point that actually this is quite um, a challenging poem. It's also, I think, perhaps not one of his best poems. Would, would you agree? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, Ted Hughes has written strong poems. I think perhaps it's... Um, but it is obviously one of the 15. And obviously there, there is a scenario where you could end up writing about it. So what we wanted to do today is talk you through a question and ways in which you could approach it. But also perhaps with a particular focus today on how to kind of introduce some of those evaluative skills, exploring different ways of structuring our argument today around different ways of looking at this poem. Um, so although it's a tricky one, hopefully we're going we're gonna to take you through it. Um, Mr. Evans found an excellent bit of context for it, actually, didn't you? Yeah, so it was, um, I found it on YouTube and we did discover that actually it's from a true crime uh, show, which it does frame Hughes an interesting line. Yeah, exactly. Uh, frame Ted Hughes as a criminal, but um, <laughs> but it does go over um, Sylvia Plath and uh, Asia Weibel, who we'll get into a Weibel, who we'll get into in more detail in a moment, um, with regards to their relationship and how uh, Hughes presents it within the poem. I, I think the key thing to note, though, is that not to be boring, but the mark scheme. There's no marks for context. So although we will inevitably talk about Ted Hughes' relationships, because we're looking at a question on relationships today, and we can't ignore them, what we need to avoid doing if you write an essay on the other is simply telling me an, a biographical um, account of Ted Hughes's, the many women that Ted Hughes had relationships with. I think we need to avoid that. So we need to be clear that the focus needs to be analytical throughout on authorial craft. How is language used? How is structure used? How is form used? And how does that lead us to meaning? But actually, um, that there's some useful biographical details that will help us. So we'll put a link to that in, in the, in the, the um, information at the bottom of the, which you can click on on Spotify. There's also the handout there. If you haven't downloaded that already, please click on it now. You done it? Good. So the question we're looking at today is how does, Ted, how does Hughes present relationships in the other? So what do you make of the question, first of all? What are you thinking when you look at a poem like this to that question? Um, well, I mean, if you look at the poem itself, it's, uh, even without any context, it's very clearly about a relationship. Um, and even if you just take the fact that there are these uh, pronouns within the poem, the she and the you, then without any context, you can very clearly have something to write about there to begin with, which is good. Do you want to tell, um, for those who haven't listened to that true crime podcast, um, do you want to give a brief account? Um, uh, uh, Sylvia Plath, um, Asia Weevil, um, what, 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 is, what are their relationship with Ted Hughes? Yeah, so Sylvia Plath, uh, who is now a more famous poet, arguably, than um, Ted Hughes, I might even say, or at least as famous as Ted Hughes. I fanboyed her grave. Um, <laughs> and, Weird uh, thing to say. <laughs> and, uh, Sylvia Plath. Um, at the time was less well-known than Ted Hughes um, and she was writing poems at the time as well trying to get them published Um, and eventually uh, she experienced depression throughout her life Um, eventually she took her own life at that time that she took her own life uh, Ted Hughes had actually been having an affair with another woman named Asia Weevil and uh, at the time as well he had actually left to be with Asia while Sylvia Plath killed herself. It then meant that Ted Hughes uh, was in a relationship with this woman, Asia Weevil, and uh, their two children then became uh, their responsibility. In addition to that as well, Asia Weevil had been pregnant um, at the previous time. So essentially there's a lot of complexities within their relationship, and in turn, uh, Asia then lived in the house uh, that Ted Hughes lived in with Sylvia Plath, um, was around their children and things like that. Eventually, Asia Weaver herself also suffered from depression. Um, she committed suicide and did it in a similar manner uh, to how Sylvia Plath did it. Um, and there's some other gritty details as well that we don't necessarily need to get into for the sake of this poem. 
Um, but it is worth knowing about that kind of mirroring between the two um, and how Ted Hughes thought about that. And what we're going to do in our approach today is not tell the examiner this long story. Instead, we're going to focus on, we're going to use this as a wedge to open up a couple of different readings of the poem. So we're going to start with a biographical reading that um, assumes certain things about the pronouns in the poems, and then we're going to perhaps counter that with another way of looking at it. So um, I'll read the thesis that, that we've got here, first of all. So... Given the fascination surrounding Ted Hughes' relationships, there is certainly a tendency towards strict biographical readings of this unsettling and problematic poem, with the you of the poem as Hughes' partner, Asya Weevil, the woman for whom he left his first wife, Sylvia Plath. Yet it is also possible to see the other as a more general meditation on some of the brutal ways in which one person may claim power or dominance over another. So essentially, what are, what are we arguing here? Um, it's that it could be, we could read this in quite a narrow biographical way, but actually, even if we strip away the context, but, you know, Ted Hughes himself strips away all the contextual clues in the poem, it's still a poem that's engaging with, with something that's quite deeply disturbing about the way in which humans can have relationships with each other. So I thought we'll, we start by thinking about um, if we see the addressee of the poem as Asya Weevil, then how do we read the poem? How does that... Um, so some of the sleuth work of Mr. Evans um, uh, is behind this. So given the other was published in Hughes's 1990 collection, um, Capriccio, which largely explores his relationship with Asya Weevil, it's certainly possible to see it as a confessional poem. So what, what, what's some of the evidence we might look at here? What might we analyse here to get away from biographical details now? What, what might we start by looking at? Hmm. So I think the immediate um, obviousness is within that opening stanza we have, you know, she had too much, so with a smile you took some. And the she and you, we set up of that uh, contentious relationship between two women. Um, context or not, we know that it's very likely between two people who are in some form of competition with each other. And there's a sense of jealousy that comes with the idea of taking something. Um, everything you had, absolutely nothing, so you took some at first just a little. Um, a little bit later we will come to how that stanza is particularly reflected towards the end and how it creates this sense of there being this kind of cyclical relationship between the two. There's also something disturbing about the syntax here, isn't it? The sentence structures, because in the first two lines would make more sense, I think, if they were on Jeanne. Um, she had too much, so with a smile you took some of everything she had. But it's not. We're, we, there's this tension between that reading, the on Jeanne reading, but the end stop stops so abruptly with that kind of hanging determiner sum, doesn't it? What, what do you make it? What's the effect of that kind of hanging determiner? She took, so, she took too much, so with a smile, you, you took some. Well, I think, I think with all of those hanging determiners, um, so we have some at the end of that line and at the end of the third line as well, and then we also have just a little and too much as well in there. And all of them create this sense of a small chipping away over time, um, but not necessarily letting us know what the full picture is or exactly how this person's being affected. Um, yeah. So. Um, and and, and the, 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 the second sentence is also awkward as well, isn't it? Of everything she had, you had absolutely nothing, so you took some. There's something almost mechanical, like it's, mm. like it's written by AI. Yeah. <laughs> it, feels, uh, it doesn't feel human. Does it? Yeah. And also, I would add to that as well, the absolutely nothing, everything she had, you had, and then the line break, absolutely nothing. So, uh, in a sense, we have everything she had, you had. You think it's going to lead to the other person having something, but they're actually this void. They have nothing there. And it's interestingly, again, if you look at the end of the poem, where that absolutely nothing is broken um, across the whole stanza. So I suppose we could talk about the importance of blank space in the poem, that Ted Hughes is clearly playing with the tension between lineation and syntax mm. to create this awkward stop-start motion to the poem mm. that reflects rhythmically, doesn't it, the, 
the awkwardness of the relationship that he's the two relationships that he's describing yeah. in the poem. Um, perhaps we could link that then to the, that allusion to Aristotle's idea of nature abhorring a vacuum. Still, she had so much she made you feel your vacuum, which nature abhorred. It's a horrible metaphor, isn't it? It's <laughs> dripping with misogyny. That's what you could actually say in an essay. But what, what do you make of that metaphor? So, within the Aristotelian idea, I think you've got that idea, like I said, nature abhors a vacuum. One of the things that I thought is that Ted Hughes tends to write about nature a lot in his poems, and that nature is this kind of elemental force that you can't control it. Um, so this idea that, in a sense, it has to happen, that the vacuum of this person, uh, that they know that they feel, then has to be filled with something, so you took your fill for nature's sake, it implies almost as if it's fated to happen, but also that it is horrifying what's happening, and that it's, you know, yeah, and inevitable. It, and, and if we read the, the You of the Poem as Asya Weevil, this is a, it's a particularly kind of emotive metaphor to describe a human being as a vacuum, an absence, a nothingness, defined simply by the other of the title of the poem. Um, it's quite a troubling kind of image, isn't it? That perhaps something we'll unpack a little bit more in the next section of our essay. Mm. Um, what do we make then of, um, of other aspects of this kind of disturbing um, depiction of, of potentially weevil in the poem? What, what else troubles you about the poem, Mr. Evans? Um, well, I thought it'd be interesting to look at some of the sections just after that. So you've got, you know, great luck made you feel, her great luck made you feel unlucky, you had redressed the balance, and then just after that as well, somebody on behalf of the gods had to correct her hubris, uh, that hubris, sorry. So again, with those sections, there's a sense there of uh, it being cruel, but also that it somehow being somewhat inevitable that these things are happening or that they are uh, trying to take control of their life, um, but in turn, you know, harming the other person through doing it. But it's quite a negative depiction of the you of the poem, mm. which if, if it's Asya, it seems to place blame for some kind of yeah. breakdown in relationship purely on her. And we see that also in the idea at the end of that second stanza of hatred as a drug, mm. as an intoxicant, a little touch of hatred steadied the nerves. You know, hatred here is being depicted as, as some, something you take to steady your nerves, that hatred is something that's, that perhaps is, is, is re- the you of the poem, perhaps, um, uh, it relies upon, which is quite horrible as well. Exactly, yeah. And I think in between those as well, I just forgot to mention, um, with the section where it mentions uh, her ambition claimed the natural uh, right to screw up like a crossed out page tossed into a basket. Now we know that obviously he accused himself as a poet, that Plath was a poet, that Asya Weevil also works in advertising. And wanted to be a poet. Exactly. So I think with all of them, again, there's that sense of uh, trying to achieve something, not having achieved it, and taking from another person in turn. So again, it's quite cruel. <laughs> yeah, because and, and the idea of um, her being a crossed out page tossed into a basket is something dismissive, doesn't it? It reduces a, you know, a human being to... To, to, to an object, to yeah. something to be dismissed, discarded, lost. And then the irony there is that obviously it's being written about in this poem, and we are reading this poem. And there's also then the final disturbing aspect of this is, of course, the shift in the final stanza, isn't mm-hmm. it? The, um, you mentioned it before, the dropped line. You had much too much, full stop, end stop line, and dropped line, blank space, the, perhaps the volta of the poem where everything shifts, everything turns. Only you saw her smile as she took some at first, just a little. What do you make of the ending of the poem then? How does the poem turn in that moment? So for me, that dropped line goes right back to the vacuum. And the idea that you're left with this space, and the space is filled with only you, and it's, you know, the drop line usually would... Be it functions as azura, doesn't it? Yeah. That huge blank space, that absence. It isn't simply a stanza break. It's, it, yeah. it's, 
it's an absence, isn't it? And it's interesting because you're told you had too much, but the line stops short where it should, and then it fills in with only you. So again, we're still seeing that vacuum. And this is where it becomes cyclical, because at the end you have uh, saw her, only you saw her smile as she took some, at first just a little. Um, just to give a bit of context around that as well, I know that um, Hughes mentioned that actually Asia felt she was uh, to some degree haunted by Plath. Yeah, and there's definitely that sense, isn't there? Sure. And the echo here of the with a smile, you took some of the first stanza is now saw her smile and she took some. Um, but what I think is most disturbing, perhaps a way to end this first section of our essay, if we are starting with this kind of slightly biographical reading, is that the absence of Hughes. This is a poem that's about his infidelity, his relationship with two different women in which the speaker is entirely absent. The blame is placed on um, the, the you, Asia perhaps, um, you know, taking from Sylvia Plath and then the Sylvia Plath, the she, in turn taking back uh, uh, in some kind of vengeance from beyond the grave. It's, it's, it, it, certainly in a, in a kind of feminist reading of the poem that the absence of, the ma- of male culpability is quite disturbing and perhaps something we could explore later in our, in our essay. And also the she seems completely blameless, which is interesting in that reading. Mm. So I guess that moves us to our next section. So in, in a lot of essays, we kind of work through a poem chronologically. I just don't think that would work with this poem. So I think it's too complex, too tricky. It might work with some of the other poems in the collection. So we thought instead we'd look at the false logic of the poem now. This is kind of Mr. Evans's idea yesterday. Um, I could put it as a potential topic sentence. There is also something disturbing in the false logic of the poem and what this sets up about the relationship between the speaker and the two women in the poem. What, what do you mean by that kind of false logic? Where are we seeing this? <sighs> A lot of it, as I mentioned before, you know, there seems to be these kind of justifications for why things happen. Um, it particularly begins with, she made you feel your vacuum, which nature abhorred. Now, if we take the idea that, you know, nature abhors a vacuum, therefore something has to happen in nature to fill that vacuum, there's a false logic that, well, this, this had to happen. And if we think about it as Hughes being the person that wanted this affair to happen, which it sounds like very much was the case, then it's almost as if this was inevitable, yet this horrible... Uh, affair and relationship then took place and it continues there as well with her great luck made you feel unlucky I mean, in both cases using polyptotin to bind these two to create a false logic to create a, a sophistry there isn't there because yeah. nature abhorred for nature's sake yeah. her great luck which made you feel unlucky so polyptotin is the repeating of a word in, in, uh, in, in different uses in the same sentence the same kind of uh, area it's quite, it feels quite uncanny doesn't it quite strange yeah. And it comes up again as well, somebody on behalf of the gods had, had to correct that hubris. Now, hubris um, being, you know, kind of that feeling of self-love uh, that then causes people to feel they should do something, pride in a sense. Um, and that is viewed as one of the seven deadly sins. All three of these uh, authors and writers came from uh, religious backgrounds, Christian backgrounds. Um, and interestingly, with Asya as well, she was Jewish uh, and Christian on both sides of the family. So... There's a sense here that he's mixing different forms of mythology and religion, again, all as a kind of self-justification for why these things happen. Yeah, because the mythos is clearly pre-Christian on behalf of the gods, had to correct that. And again, the had to, as a a verb phrase, is so... um, There's an elision of responsibility, isn't there? There's a sense of... of, In in many ways, you could compare this, not that it's a comparative task, but with some of the poems about nature, like Hawk Roosting, Mm. where nature is presented this implacable force that doesn't have to explain itself, that is amoral, it's outside of the moral framework, it's not immoral. And there's almost like this slight imposition of that amoral framework here onto quite things that clearly are to do with human morality, where there, there is choice involved, it isn't just animal natures taking their cause. And I think the important part there, then, is it raises this question, um, which 
doesn't necessarily need to be answered of the poet himself. Is he on the side of the person who's the you in the poem? Does he feel that their reasons are justifiable? Or, arguably, is he kind of making fun of the fact that they felt these, uh, this is self-justified? Naturally, it wasn't. It's not something that had to take place. It's something that they chose to allow to take place, and he's mocking that fact. And certainly, I guess, and if you're going with that reading, this is where in essays you can actually use conditional clauses. You don't have to, you can say that if we see um, the, the, the speaker as being somewhat critical towards the you, uh, as the weevil of the poem, then we can, there's something disturbing in those transactional metaphors that run through, all the way the idea of relationships being equated with taking, with compensation, with rights, with what's lost, with what's fair. Um, all of these metaphors equate um, human relationships simply with transactions, don't they? With, with, yeah. with, with finances. It's, it's so it's reductive, isn't it? It's so disturbing in kind of what it does to sense of humanity of the, of the, in the, the characters in the poem, doesn't it? Shall we look at then at perhaps the final section? Because we could read the poem in a different way. So if, however, we read the poem differently, with the addressee not as Weevil, but as Hughes himself, then the poem seems to explore quite a different aspect of the speaker's relationships. So this is where, actually, what we might want to do in this final section of the essay is go back and look at some of the same things that we've already looked at, but reevaluate them in a different way. Um, where should we start? Again, I think it's important to start with that opening stanza. She had too much, so with a smile, you took some. And if we take that you as being Hughes and his situation in this relationship, then the she questionably becomes either Plath or Asia. Or both. Exactly, or both. Because actually what we see with both women is a kind of repetition of a cycle of uh, you know, a relationship which is incredibly unhealthy and actually leads to you know, the worst ending possible. Um, so with the idea of him taking some, then really that, you know, is what's happening as he brings in one woman to a relationship and takes some away from the other woman. Um, if everything she had, you had absolutely nothing. Now here's where it gets interesting because if he's the person who has absolutely nothing, he's the vacuum filling himself with these women. And certainly, um, this is one of those ones where actually it may, not, may well not be intended by Hughes. It may well be counter to authorial intention, but actually it's still possible to argue it, isn't it? Yeah. Um, should we look at some of the other ones then? So, because if we see then Hughes as the you of the poem, the idea of the vacuum, he is that vacuum at the centre of the poem. He is that kind of, that, that, um, that absence vampirically feeding upon um, these, these others around, around him, isn't it? Yeah, and in fact, um, because we've already looked at the second stanza, I think it'd be interesting to look at the third stanza in this light. Everything she had won, the happiness of it, you collected as your compensation for having lost. If we just stopped there, it's worth bearing in mind that Hughes was the literary executor of Platt's um, kind of legacy, and that she became more famous after her death, and particularly with her collection Ariel, and that he, in turn, would be responsible for actually gathering royalties from her work and, you know, things like that. Um, yet she had lost her life. Um, and in turn, as well, the same thing would happen with Asia. So there's this sense that in a sense, Hughes knows that he is in this uncomfortable position of benefiting from the death of Sylvia Plath, and that this death of Asia, he's then writing about, and in some way, he's kind of benefiting from the death of her by being able to write about it in poetry while she remains dead. And that's interesting in the other metaphor as well. Even her life was trapped in the heap you took. I mean, I love the kind of plosives that kind of bind that line together. Mm. Trapped in the heap you took. There's a real violence 
to that kind of that short kind of that, that short line in, in the in the penultimate stanza, yeah. um, and it, and of course if we see that the heap here is the heap of Hughes's work potentially, mm. you know that that of course Asia is trapped in this collection that he that he publishes in the, in yeah. 1990. Um, uh, you know he was. Famously, very controlling over Platt's estate. Um, you know, even disposing of some of her journals, yeah. um, allegedly. <laughs> um, and that actually, there is the sense of the, the the him trapping both women in his in his own kind of poetry, in his own art, in poems, in fact, like this one, perhaps. Exactly, and the same uh, goes there for them. When you get to too late, you saw what had happened because actually, this collection was published in 1990. He then wrote about his relationship with Platt in the year of his death. And it's, that's the too late. All of this is happening too late on. You know, he hasn't, uh, people will, will have bothered him about it for years and years and years. And only now does he feel ready to write about it. So I suppose that leads us maybe to a conclusion, which is where we can then unpick. And obviously what CIE really love is personal responses that's mm-hmm. mentioned twice in the Marx scheme. And it's the idea, this is where we can sit with the poem. Do we see it as a poem dripping with misogyny, blaming two women for ultimately their own deaths? Or do we see it as the poem of a man perhaps reflecting upon um, the past and his relationships and, and, and engaging with his own responsibility? It's either a poem in which he elides all responsibility or, or he takes on all responsibility. Both readings there hover there ambiguously and it perhaps depends upon your own story that you want to tell of Hughes yeah. probably depends upon which reading that you take. Exactly, 100%. I think it's quite important there to uh, go through the text to get to that point and to not take it from your own personal opinion of Hughes, but to think about what's the tone of this poem and what's the tone of the speaker of the poem who is speaking about these two remote people, yet when we take it as autobiographical, it no longer feels remote. It suddenly feels deeply personal. Thank you. Well, I think, I think we've got enough there. <laughs>